welcome to our first Wednesday chapel of the second semester. Julie and I want to welcome you, and we're excited about what God has for us this semester. There are a few announcements that are pretty important and some things coming up, um, and I, hopefully we can get the, the screens up here. First of all, this Sunday, we have a play in here at 2.30. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I think it's at 7.30, Little Shop of Horrors. Come check it out. But because of the play and because there's a minor football game on Sunday night, there is no chapel on Sunday. So you can, you can watch the game guilt-free and uh, root for whoever. How many Patriot fans? A few. How many Rams fans? How many anti-Patriot fans? There you go. Okay, that's, that's the real thing, right? That's the real thing right there. All right. That's the most in interaction we've had all year. That's great. All right. Next week is a very important week. Every year, Sterling College sets aside a week to take some extra time and invest in our spiritual lives and challenge us on some issues and help us grow in our relationship with God. I'm really excited. Uh, next week, uh, we have Cameron and Stephanie Jackson coming. And I've known Cameron ever since I first came here. He was a student at Sterling College when I first came. I followed his career as he, he played as a player, as he coached, as he became a campus pastor at one of our KCAC schools, and then met Stephanie. They planted a church in Wichita, and I am excited to have the two of them come share with you next week. Next Wednesday, we have Deacon Chapel, and then a very intriguing event that I just want to uh, explain a little bit about. Um, Cameron and Stephanie have kids... She's pregnant right now, and they have an 18-year-old. She has kids from a previous relationship, and they have this wonderful, dynamic, God-fearing um, relationship and marriage. On Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, they're inviting you to come to Cornerstone. They're going to share about the sacred search, finding your forever. What does a relationship blessed by God really look like, and how do you do that? They're going to talk, and there's going to be dialogue, and they're going to interact with you. I think it's going to be an extraordinary time. Grab your, grab your meal and, and, and the calf, come on over to Cornerstone and, and join us for that. On Thursday, they're just going to be available to you. They're going to hang out in a union. If you want to talk one-on-one, -on -one, if you want to talk as a group, um, if you want to hear their story, if you just have questions, they'll talk with you, pray with you, whatever you'd like. But they're just here for you on Thursday. Friday, uh, Cam's going to speak for our Peacemakers Convocation. And then after that, they're going to go back to Cornerstone for lunch and just have a Q&A where anything they said on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, something you didn't get a chance to ask, you get a chance to be a part of it. They're a phenomenal couple. We're going to be blessed to have them. And I, I want to invite you to make the most of it next, next week. Um, one of the things we want to do each week is pray for this community. And as we kick things off today, uh, I just ask that you bow and um, invite God to really demonstrate his presence to us. Lord, I thank you for these students, this faculty, this staff, this place called Sterling College. I stop first of all, we pray for Kathy Garrett Matsmoff. Lord, this battle with cancer is a horrendous thing. The hurt, the pain, the illness, the sickness, the stress, the fear that all comes, God, you are an authority over it all. And we pray for your peace, we pray for your wisdom, we pray for moments of celebration of your goodness and faith in this family. We pray for healing. 
And we pray, God, in those moments where we don't even know how to pray or what to do, that your presence would be so tangible that the family would feel it. Thanks for Matt and all he does here, and I pray especially that you comfort his heart today. And God, for all of us, uh, I prayed Sunday night, and I pray again, that this would be a semester where you shine light into dark places in our lives. Where your word would open up things that we never even knew were there, that there would be healing, there would be restoration, there would be redemption. And God, you would be a powerful, powerful light in the darkness that has to see. Thank you for being here today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 30 years ago, I was in college, 31, 32, somewhere around there, and I was studying to be a teacher. Uh, how many education majors? All right, do we have a class technology in the classroom here? All right, I had that same class 30-some years ago. Here's what we studied. How to use overhead projectors. You see, there's two ways. You've got the ones with the rollers that you can roll. Some of you have never seen an overhead projector, I just realized. All right, old people, you know what I'm talking about. And then you had the ones where you could actually send it through the photocopier and you had sheets with notes. We learned all kinds of cool tricks with overhead projectors. Um, oh, there was these new calculators that were coming out that would do all kinds of scientific stuff and graphing. You, anybody ever use one with TI something or other? Those are brand new. Like we had never seen these before and there was all kinds of games and things that we could do on them. Oh, there was this cool, cool thing. It was called the Apple II. And it had a game called the Oregon Trail. Yes, that was the best part of class. All we did was play Oregon Trail. I have no idea what ac academic or educational value it had, but we spent a whole week learning how to play Oregon Trail on the Apple II. My favorite, a brand new invention. And my teacher, my professor was so excited. He brought in this machine, a Scantron. We had never seen it before. We never, I never took a Scantron test in college. And there was this new thing where it would grade your paper for you. There were things called floppy disks that held a whole 512 kilobytes of information. And then they got smaller, and it was, this was our technology. So I'm assuming you're learning a little bit more advanced stuff today. Um, Somehow, I think there's some educational value in Fortnite or something. We just haven't figured it out yet. All right. There's another class I had. Do we have methods of education? Some type of class like that today. All right. Where you learn methods in the current philosophy. We learn things like Bloom's taxonomy. Is that still? You study Bloom's taxonomy, all the levels of learning. At that time, there was something called Madeline Hunter's Elements of Instruction. And we had it pounded into our head. Anticipatory set, objectives, input, uh, input, modeling, guided practice, individual practice, and closure. I think I skipped one in there. Every lesson plan had to be in that order. When I filled out job applications, I had to use Hunter's language to get in the door to get an interview. And then there was one other philosophy in that class that permeated everything. There was this idea back in the 80s and early 90s that if we wanted kids to learn, if we wanted kids to improve, if we wanted their performance to go up, the number one thing we had to do was we had to build their self-esteem. That if their self-esteem would grow, 
They would play better. They would test better. They would do better. The state of California spent millions of dollars on new curriculum based on this philosophy. And we were pounded this over and over again. You've got to build your kids' self-esteem. When I was a teacher, this thing came out, outcome-based education. One of the tenets of it was you never let kids fail. You guys would probably like this. If you fail the test, you never get an F. You just take the test over again. And again, and again, and again, until you pass it, because failing hurts kids' self-esteem. Problem was, as research began to come out, that didn't work. As a matter of fact, my master's, final master's project was a big literature review and looked at over 100 studies on self-esteem done through the 1980s and 1990s. The reality is they could only document two correlations with an improved self-esteem. Not grades, not athletics, or performance, or music, or nothing changed with high self-esteem, except for marijuana use and vandalism. Those are the only two things where when people's self-esteem went up, we saw those behaviors improve. We begin to look at it again. What is it that really matters? And, and psychologists and educators, we begin to see there's a difference between self-esteem and self-worth. Our self-esteem goes up and down all day long. We, somebody tells us we look good and we feel good, and then somebody tells us we look bad and we feel bad. We, we get a good grade in one class and we feel good, and, and then we get a bad grade in another class and we feel bad, and our self-esteem jumps all over the place. Sometimes people with low self-esteem, they work really hard to overcome it, Sometimes people with high self-esteem chill out because they think they're just gifted and they don't have to work. But worth is a different thing. Our self-worth, the value we truly have, what we truly perceive and experience. Our theme verse this year is Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. A little bit earlier in that chapter, Paul tells us this, but because of his great love for you, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were already dead in our sins. It is by grace that we have been saved. That God places so much worth on us that even while we were sinners, even before we knew Jesus, God did something. God called to us. God sent his son to die for us because we have this extraordinary worth and nothing we do and nothing that the world says can take that worth away from us. That's what I want to talk about this morning with you. You have worth, whether you realize it or not, because you are loved and wanted. You have worth because you have a purpose that God has already set apart. He has already put in place things for you to accomplish that your gift set and your abilities and your unique experience make you uniquely qualified out of the entire planet to do what God has set for you. As you start this semester, I'm going to tell you frankly, and those of you who are psych majors, we can discuss the difference between self-worth and self-esteem, but frankly, your self-esteem doesn't matter that much this semester. It's going to go up and down. It's going to change. But your worth and your perception of worth makes all the difference. 
For those of us who struggle with that, I hope God shines his light in that. Here's the first way we get worth. We get worth because we're wanted and are part of something. There's a lot of reasons why some of us feel worthless. Some of us feel worthless because we've been abused or we've been treated poorly. Some of us feel like we have no worth because somebody told us that. They told us we weren't any good. They told us we didn't have any value. Some of us made some choices. And we know now they weren't good choices. And because of that, we look at where we're at. And, and we have this overriding sense of worthlessness that somebody who was good, somebody who was strong wouldn't have done what I did. Some of us feel worthless because we've been cheated on. And somebody didn't think us valuable enough to treat well. And one of the most powerful, powerful reasons we feel worthless is somebody abandoned us at some point in time in our life. Somebody turned their back on us. Somebody walked out. Somebody, somebody died and left us. When we've got this sense of abandonment and rejection, those scars run deep. And it's difficult to feel any sense of worth. I'm going to show you a video clip. I'm going to warn you that it's got a little bit of language we don't normally hear in chapel. But the language is real and raw. And it's one of the most powerful things. I still remember seeing it for the very first time when it comes to how much this can hurt and how long these scars can last. I have a lot of brothers. I don't know how many. We just always took in foster kids. I have two brothers who were born to my mom. I have a couple others that are adopted. And I had a whole bunch that were with us for days and weeks and months and even years. Many of them came out of the most horrendous abuse you could ever imagine. One brother was taken from his parents because of what they did. He was adopted by a family and the and social had to come back in and take him from that family because they abused him even worse. My youngest brother, I still remember watching TV at three years old Somebody had kidnapped him to get him away from the stuff his mom was doing to him. The National Guard had to find him, and he's standing there next to this soldier. And his mom walks in the room, and at three years old, he sees his mom and tries to hide behind the soldier so she won't see him. The abuse was horrendous. And yet to this day, I remember the social worker coming to our house and saying, listen, no matter what they did, no matter how bad it was, you could never tell them their mom or dad didn't love them. Because if they ever get to the place, you can tell them they don't know how to be a good mom. You can tell them they don't know how to be a good dad. You can tell them they don't know how to love, but you never tell them they weren't loved because if they ever get to the place where they feel like they weren't loved, where they were rejected, they will never recover from that. They will never be able to love somebody in a healthy way. Rejection and abandonment hits us at the very deepest place where we live. There's a story in the Old Testament about a prophet whose wife is a prostitute. And she has some kids. He actually names his kids not loved and not mine. That's harsh. And some of us 
wrestle with this idea of how can I be worth something if somebody rejected me? Here's what I'm going to tell you. God says something different. That very prophet, God comes in later and says, listen, you know that child, not mine? I just changed the name. It's now mine. That child not loved, I just changed the name. It's love. When we follow Jesus, here's, here's what God's word says about you now, regardless of whatever's happened in your life. Ephesians 1. Long ago, even before he made the world, God loved you and chose you in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this gave him great pleasure. Paraphrase. God took pleasure in bringing you into your, into his family. It didn't matter who rejected you. It didn't matter who cast you out. Ephesians 2, 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so very much that even while we were dead in our sins, he chose to give us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Nothing can change that. Nothing anybody says, nothing anybody does. One of the things the Bible tells us is that once we come to Jesus, nothing gets in the way. Nothing can pull us. Romans 8, Paul says this, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrased it this way. Do you think that anything or anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not threats, not bullies, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins, nothing can drive a wedge between you and your Heavenly Father. He wants you that much. And no matter who has rejected you, no matter who has hurt you, no matter who has said, you can't do it, God says, no. Before time, I already planned to send Jesus for you. For some of you, that's a hard video clip to watch because it hits at home. I like to do something. I believe God's word is far more powerful than any analogy that I can ever come up with. I'd like you to just close your eyes a second. And I would like to read over you God's word from Isaiah 43. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the river, it will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you are precious 
and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. And I would add, I will even give my son for you. Go ahead and open your eyes. It doesn't matter how wounded, it doesn't matter how valueless you feel, it doesn't matter what has happened. There is one who will never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can drive you out of his hands. Nothing can make him love you less. Because when you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you then. He loves you that much. And if you take nothing else from today, nothing else going into this semester, understand that the God of heaven, the God who created everything, says you are precious. And you are honored. I called you. I formed you. I love you. I want you. And nothing will ever change that. There's a second thing that gives us worth, though. Not just the fact that we're wanted. Not just the fact that we're part of something. But there's something else that's essential in worth. There's this idea of competency. The, the term in psychology is self-efficacy. You have value if you're a surgeon, right? If you can remove somebody's appendix so they don't die, you have value. You have value if you're an athletic trainer and you can tape somebody up and get them back in the game, right? We, where would we be without our trainers? I know we all boo the Patriots, there's a reason why Tom Brady has as much money as he does, right? Because he can do stuff a lot of people can't. There's a competency that he has. That goes down. There's a reason. There's a reason why Kyla Conley is so valuable to our women's basketball team, right? Yeah, she's pretty good. But here's the other thing. I'm going to tell you, every member of the Patriot organization has some type of value. Every member of our women's basketball team and our student body and the guys without shirts in the front row and duct tape on their nipples, <laughs> right? Everybody has some value because we add, we have some competence that we add to what's going on. That's, that's, what, our, that's what our theme verse says, for you are God's workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to do something which God prepared in advance for you to do. Last semester, Aaron Brown told us how this means that the actual words that we are God's poem or poema. When we give our lives to Jesus, we're told that we are now a new creation. We are created in Christ. And this new creation is his masterpiece. And somehow he's weaving your masterpiece into the tapestry with somebody else's masterpiece. And what he is bringing about, you have an essential part. He gives you spiritual gifts. You were born with certain abilities and tendencies. You have developed certain skills. And you have tremendous value here at Sterling College, in Kansas, in California, in Arizona. You have value to your families and to your floor and your dorm. 
You have value to your professors and staff. You have things that God said, here's what I've prepared for you to do. And you have this unique skill set that only you can do it the way God intended. Some of you are shaking your heads right now. Now, I'm not a masterpiece. Listen, I don't know if I'm going to be eligible after this semester. I don't even know if I'm going to get the grades. I don't know if I... Let me tell you a story. Has anybody heard of Michelangelo's David? This huge, beautiful marble statue. You know the story behind it? There was this huge block of marble. What is it? David's over 17 feet tall, I think, if I remember my history right. Those of you who are art majors, is that correct? Or seven? Or seven. I, I knew there was a seven in there, but it's big. There was this block of marble, and the sculptor looked at it and said, no, that's no good. A second sculptor looked at it and said, no, that's no good, it's flawed. And for 40 years, that block of marble just sat abandoned, discarded, ignored. And then a young 20-something sculptor came along, and he looked at it. And when somebody asked him about it after it was done, he said this, every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. I saw the angel. I saw David in the marble, and I carved until I set him free. Some of you may feel discarded. Some of you may feel useless. You've been passed over. You didn't get the job. You didn't get the scholarship. You didn't start. You can go on and on, and you can list all these things. And you have a heavenly father that looks down and says, listen, I, I see what's in the marble. I see the gifts and abilities I've given you. I see what you have, and I'm going to chip away, and I'm going to work, and I'm going to refine you, and I'm going to sanctify you. Until you become a masterpiece. And I'm going to weave you into the masterpiece I'm doing in this entire world as I call them back to me. As a follower of Jesus, you are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. He wants you, he loves you, he redeemed you, and he calls you. On Sunday, I shared that uh, our prayer this semester is for God to shine light into some of the dark places in our lives. For those of you that know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, my prayer today is that your sense of worth as a follower of Jesus crystallizes. You realize you are loved. You realize you are his, that you are wanted. You realize that no matter what the world has said, what people have said, there is a God who loves you, who sees you as precious and honored, and looks at you as part of his masterpiece. But we also have others here who have never made that decision to follow Jesus Christ. And I'm just glad you're here at Sterling. I'm glad I get a chance to interact with you this semester. I'm praying for you too. My prayer for you is that Jesus continues to call to you. That this semester he will shine light into your light in ways you've never seen before. He will draw you to him. And that sometime this semester you're laying, you're, your name changes from not mine to mine. 
that sometime this semester you become so overwhelmed with the worth that the God of the universe says you have so much that he gave his son to die for you. This is a valuable teaching. Our student body and faculty and staff have tremendous worth. Pray God shines his light and helps us see that. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord, as we go today, I pray that you would impress on our hearts just how much value we are to you. How much worth is in us. How much you love us. How much you walk with us. How much you protect us. How much, no matter what we've done, where we've been, what people have said, how much that does not matter. But the reality is those right now who are walking through the river, you walk beside them making sure they get to the other side. No matter which of us are going through the fire right now, Lord, it's hot. You say, you're so valuable, I'm there with you, and I will make sure you do not get burned. God, you love us so much. Help us rest in that. Help us see it. And in those moments that we doubt, I pray that another masterpiece would come alongside of us, a roommate, a friend, a teammate, and they would love on us the way that you love us and remind us who we really are. We love you. We thank you. We go in your name. Amen.